You are listening to Press Church Podcasts. Please enjoy this week's message. Continuing our sermon series, we're going to finish it off next week. We've been talking about the importance of the Word of God. You can put the first slide up, how to study the Word. We're going to just run through kind of what we've been talking about. We're going to, like the Scripture says, line upon line, precept upon precept to show you what we're trying to do throughout this sermon series. The first week, we preached a sermon on the importance of Jesus being the Word of God. You can go to the next slide. We talked about the first scripture that we're basing this off of is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. So if Jesus is the Word of God, therefore, and Jesus is also full of grace and truth, then we can understand by reading the scriptures that the Bible itself is full of grace and truth. Why do we keep trying to beat people over the head with the book when the book is full of grace and truth? We should be showing people the word through love with full of grace and truth to help them. So there are some things we talked about in the very first week, things that we established to help us as we went into this sermon series. Jesus is the word of God. He was at the beginning. Creation happened with him. We went all the way to Revelations. Remember that? Where we saw that Jesus is sitting on a white horse. He's got a tattoo on his inner thigh. His name is truth. His name is faithful. His name is the word of God. He's full of grace and truth, which means the Bible is full of grace and truth. So we said that spending time in the Word will help us distinguish, remember in 1 John, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The spirit of error is rampant throughout all of modern history and culture right now. How do we know what the truth is? It's something that we as humans so desperately desire. I don't wake up in the morning hoping and praying that my wife lies to me. Come on, baby, I hope you lie to me today. I don't wake up wanting my son, my boss my friends, my family, to lie to me. No, no, what we want is the truth. I want my wife to tell me, even though sometimes I don't like hearing it, when I'm a jerk. You're being a jerk right now. Can you stop that? You're right, I'm sorry. I want the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts. I want my son to come up to me and say, I love you, Dad. Really mean it. I love you. I want to talk to my family and friends and hear the truth from them. So we need to understand that there's got to be a way that I can differentiate between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, and that is the Word of God. My last question that we talked about in the first week was, do you trust the Word? Because if you trust the Word as it being your life force, your map, then we need to be reading it more. We need to be studying it more. I have another question that follows that. Have you lost confidence in the Scriptures? If you're being honest with yourself, have you read it? Have you stood on a scripture? Have you done something, believed something, and it hasn't come through? Have you lost confidence in the scriptures? And hopefully, as we go through this series, it'll help build your confidence and build your trust back in the Word of God. We can go to the next one. So we went to, last week, went to the classroom. This week, we're going to be in the classroom as well. We're going to do some teaching Sorry that the sun's not shining, it's a rainy day, but I need you to put on your thinking caps today. We're in the classroom, and uh, we talked about the history of the Bible. You can go to the next one. We talked about how it was broken down into different divisions. There's Old Testament, New Testament, different divisions, different ways that it can be broken down into 39 books in the Old Testament. You can go to the next one. New Testament, we have four divisions, 27 books there. I'm running through this fast. This is what we talked about last week. You can listen to the podcast if you want to catch up. Uh, we can go to the next one. 
talked about that. You can go to the next one. We talked about translations as well. That's not a slide, um, but we talked about the importance of a translation. Uh, we have King James, New King James, Amplified, The Message, The Passion. There's so many different versions that are out there uh, that I encouraged you to research what's the best version for you that you can read and understand. You know, if you don't understand the King James Version because of the way that it's written in its language, well, then you're not going to get anything out of it. So find you a version, find you a translation. They've got Christian bookstores here, they've got Amazon. Find you a Bible that can help you, that you can read and understand what it's saying so that the Holy Spirit can speak to you and through you. Um, so we're here talking about hermeneutics. A big Bible word isn't talked much about in the Bible, I mean in the, in the church. Um, homiletics is the art and study of preaching. That's uh, a class that I took in Bible school, but they also have something called hermeneutics. These are the definitions of them, the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary text, the science of interpretation, the branch of theology that deals with the principles of biblical exegesis. So we're diving into, over the next couple of minutes and yet last week, the eight rules or laws of hermeneutics. There's more rules that are out there, but I'm kind of focusing on eight, and maybe down the line we'll, uh, we'll dig a little bit deeper in the future. So we can go to the next one. The first one we talked about was the rule of definition. Research the English word in the text and research the original word of the text. Um, a question that you can ask when it comes to the rule of definition as you're studying the Bible, when you come to a passage, when you come to a scripture, you can ask yourself, what does this word mean to me? If you come across a word that's confusing, that you've never heard before, you read something, first thing you should ask, what does this word mean to me in the rule of definition? Another thing you can ask is, what does this word mean in the English language? Maybe it's got a different definition than what it means to me. There could be just some slang, some vernacular in the area. People in the South talk way differently than people in the North. When I order a, a Coke down here, they ask me which one, what flavor. Up there, they ask for what, sodas? Is that, is that what, soda pop or something up there? That it can mean two different things. I, I don't, so what's the word mean to me? What's the word mean in the English dictionary? And then the third thing we can ask when it comes to the rule of definition is, is what does the word mean in the original text? And we talked about the importance of concordances and different things that we can look at in the original text. Like the word love. We read the word love in the Bible, but there's potentially four to five different definitions for the type of love that could be written about in the Bible. And your idea of what love is right now in your relationship, in your relationship with your parents, and relationship with your kids, that, couldn't, that could be a not that great of a love. The word love in the English dictionary could mean something. And then in Greek and Latin, that word love has four or five different meanings. So we want to look at the definition. You can go to the next one. We talked about a definition, an, an opportunity of Psalm 91, for he shall give his angels charge. And we just made it look, this is how it can look completely different. If I think of charge in 2020, that means my phone's dying, I need to plug in somewhere. The word charge in the English dictionary means I charge you for something. You go to the grocery store right here, you can't just walk out with a gallon of milk. They're going to charge you for that. Or you're going to get really charged by the police uh, for stealing. So I guess there's multiple <laughs> charges. But then in the actual Hebrew language, we see that that word is savah, to command, to charge. So we can see the definitions 
when we read the Bible, can be completely different and can construe our understanding if we just take it for face value at times. We can go to the next one. The rule of usage. This is where we left off last week. We need to understand and remember that the writer is writing to a specific people group that would understand his writings. We need to research to understand how the author used his writings, sayings, grammar. We talked about this with the Apostle Paul. You remember how we read the different texts of the Apostle Paul, the different books of the Apostle Paul, and he always starts his books with grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we get an idea of Paul's writings as we see him from book to book. We see how he writes just like you would read any other book. You can read William Shakespeare. You can see how he would write or how he says different things. Research the author of the book, who he's writing to or speaking to as the audience. That we made the statement last week that all of the Bible is for us, but not all the Bible is written to us. It's not all written to us. We know that because the Old Testament was written by Jewish men to the Jewish people about their Jewish culture. But all the Bible's for us. God can speak to us through any part of that book, but we have to understand that the people are writing to certain people groups. We have to figure that out. So there's a question that we can ask when we're studying the Word. How are the words or writing of the author used, and who are they written to? We can go to the next one. We kind of talked about that where we could see Luke, in his beginning part of his book, he says that he's writing to this person called Theophilus. So he's, that's who he's writing to as he's explaining in, in, in Luke and in Acts. In Philippians, we see Paul writing, and he says, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi. So we know that he's writing to a Greek church, a Gentile church. So that should pique our interest as Paul is writing to a Gentile church. I'm a Gentile, so whatever he's writing, I should be paying attention to. And then the last example we had was James. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Okay, so this says that James is writing to the Jews. He's writing to the 12 tribes of Jewish people. So there could be some things in there that he's writing to the Jewish people that could be confusing to us as Gentiles. So we can get our radar picked up there and say, okay, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to read this book, understanding that all the book and all the Bible is for me, but James isn't written directly to me, so therefore I'm going to read it and try and get some understanding. Holy Spirit, help me as I go through this book. All right, so we just went through the the last two weeks. Now we're going to go through this week. So the next rule that we're going to do is the rule of context. Number three, we can go to the next slide. The rule of context. To understand the scripture being read, whatever passage, whatever scripture you're reading, we must pay attention to the scripture above it and below it to not take the scripture out of context. I mean, that makes sense. In any book that we read, whether it's the Bible or anything, if you just open up a book and go to chapter 7 of whatever, you're going to be confused. I don't know what's going on. I should, I should go back to chapter 1. I should go back to the introduction and get some context of what's going on so I can fully understand chapter 7. That's, that's all we're saying here in this rule, is if you just dive into the middle of 1 Corinthians, if you just dive into Hebrews, into Genesis, into Psalms, or whatever, and you dive into it, sometimes you might not completely understand what's going on. So we encourage you to just read above and below to get an idea of what is going on. 
The question that you can ask if you're going to apply the rule of context to Bible study is what is this paragraph? What is this chapter? What is this book talking about? Because if we're being honest, we've, we've read the Bible when you're tired, when you wake up in the morning, before you go to bed, you close the book, and you have that thought, what the heck did I just read? What? I mean, I know I read the Bible. I read some pages and some words, but I don't know what I just read. Or you're reading something, and you read this scripture that sticks out to you, and you're like, okay, what does this mean? I have questions about it. Well, let's go above and let's go below and see what the writer is talking about to get some context. Because a lot of people can take one scripture out of this book and then bring it to the pulpit and take it completely out of context. Bring it against you and bring, bring and it's like, that's not even what it means. That's not what the writer was talking about. You're just bringing your opinion. You're just bringing your anger to that text and dumping it on me. So I need some context of what's going on. That's why as a pastor, I try and not just stay in. If I do preach one scripture, I try and tell you throughout there, this is what's going on in the whole passage. This is what happened before. This is what happened afterwards. I try and bring the whole story to that part with you. We're going to show you an example, but we're going to combine two rules together. So the next one we're going to do is number four, is the rule of historical background. Rule of historical background. So as we're studying and reading these different books, we have to understand that it was written over 2,000 years. So history was happening at different times. I've been alive for 30 years, and I've been under, I don't know, four or five maybe presidents. And every time during those presidents has been different time periods of history. Different things have happened. Also, different things have happened to me. You know, I don't remember. I was born in 86. Does anybody remember who the president was? Was it original Daddy Bush back then? Was that, no, maybe? Was that after, after that? So I was born at the end of the 80s. I don't remember whoever the president was there. I'd have to go back and research and read about what he did, his policies, whatever happened back from 86 to 90. I, I, don't, I don't know. I was four years old. I wasn't that deep into the politics yet. So we need to research the cultural norms and history of the time period during the passage of Scripture. Some questions that we can ask while we're reading for this is what was going on during that time of the writing? What was life and society like during this time? Something simple to understand this is Jesus and his preaching. Jesus, as he's teaching, he talks about shepherds. He talks about sowing and reaping. He talks about farmers. He talks about widows. He talks about the church. He, he talks about things that are happening around him. When Jesus is talking in parables and talking about mountains and different things, more than likely, he's near a tree that he's talking about. More than likely, he's near the mountains. So as he's talking to his people, as he's talking to the congregation, he can say, well, it's like a mountain which is more than likely in the background of him. He had a, a, great, a great background scenery everywhere he went. As he talked about fishing, because the norms of that time, people weren't accountants. People, people weren't putting on a, a suit and tie and, and going to the high-rise building and clocking in and typing on the computer. They were farmers. They were fishermen. They were shepherds. 
So the stories and the history that he used at that time is what he was talking about, the norms, the cultural norms. So it helps us to understand what was happening during that time. Oh, okay, there were shepherds there. That's why he keeps talking about shepherds. There weren't, uh, there, there weren't airplane pilots. He, were, he wasn't talking about, in his stories, airplane. He was talking about shepherds. So we, we have to understand the history of what's happening there. Let's, uh, let's apply the rule of context, and let's apply the rule of historical background to this passage right here. Let's go to the next one. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Let your women keep silent in the churches. Boy, some people have, they have built their theology on that, huh? If you came in here today and you're a woman and you said one word, you are a sinner. Mm-mm-mm. How dare you? No, no, no. Let your women keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as, they lay, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husband at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. But what if they don't have a husband? What, who do they go ask then? See, this scripture right here has been taken out of context. You've probably heard somebody in some way, shape, or form harp on this scripture to put women down when women over and over and over throughout the Bible have been used by God in a powerful way. But we have people we have that want to take this scripture, pull it out, and put bondage on women and say, you better shut your mouth. Not talk in church. You be submissive. Okay, all right. Let's get some context of what he's talking about. Well, let's go to the bottom of this passage in this scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 39 through 40. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Well, last time I checked, speaking in tongues was available to men and available to women. So therefore, Paul's already contradicting himself when he's telling the woman to be quiet, but he's also saying, hey, I'm not going to forbid you to speak in tongues. Okay, all right. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Oh, wait, there it is. The context of the whole chapter 14 is that there is just a craziness that's happening in the church. Men and women are doing all kinds of things. If you keep reading 1 Corinthians, there are people who are showing up, taking communion, eating all the bread, drinking all the wine, and getting drunk as he's trying to corral this crazy church as he's trying to explain the gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues, the historical background of this in the synagogues, they believe that men should sit on one side, women should sit on the other side, and there should be a divide or a cloth or something in between the men and the women. Because if men and women sit next to each other, they might get too handsy. They might not be paying attention, they'll be too busy looking at the women. So then, they've made this rule, they've made this law, and they said, okay, we can do a sheet. Some synagogues believe that we should do a balcony, and the women should sit way up in the balcony. They also said, well, the wall should be a certain height. If men are about six feet tall, we don't want them looking over the wall, potentially seeing a woman, or one that is not dressed correctly, so we need to build a six-foot wall between men and women. Now what was happening in the church is all the men were on this side, all the women were on this side, and the women would be sitting, listening to the speaker. And if Mr. Jim was my husband, they would say, Hey Jim, 
What's he talking about? I don't understand it. What's he, what's he talking about? Who's Jesus? Who's the Holy Spirit? I don't understand prophecy. Hey, Jim, tell me. Tell me what's going on. And the person who's up here preaching, hey, okay. As these women are trying to ask the men, and he's saying, hey, context. The rule of context, the rule of historical background, now all of a sudden brings brand new light to this scripture. The reason he's saying this thing is that all things will be done decently and in order. Hey, let's, let's calm down, congregation. Let's, let's calm it down. Women, if you've got questions, go home and ask your husband. Don't ask your husband in the middle of the service. As you're yelling over everybody else, as you're yelling over the wall, as you're yelling. If we jump back just a couple more scriptures, a couple more chapters, either Paul is writing to two different churches of Corinth, or he's writing to the same people group in 1 Corinthians 11.5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. So he's saying in 1 Corinthians 11, he's telling women that they should be praying and prophesying in church, I don't know if you've ever received a prophecy, but a prophecy is me talking to you from the Lord saying something to me. I've never seen somebody say, I've got a prophetic word for you. Did you receive that? Is a blessing to you? No, 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 because we, we speak the prophecy. So in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is telling the women to pray and prophesy in church, and then in 1 Corinthians 14, he's telling them to shut up. No, no, that, it can't be. That way, but people have taken that scripture, taken it out of context, and put it as handcuffs over women. Don't you dare pray, prophesy, talk, or do anything in church. I don't know if you know this, but my entire staff is women. I'm outnumbered. My worship leader, a woman. My secretary, a woman. My wife, a woman. Amen. And they're all tongue-talking, God-loving, Bible-believing, strong women of God that I'd have them pray this house down anytime over anybody else. Historical background and context. See? See how we can take a scripture out of the middle of a book, and boy, we can use that to push our agenda. But if we read the context of it and we read Paul's writing as he constantly is talking about women throughout all of his books, as he's, as he's, if you read the end of the books that he writes, he's always saying, I want to say thank you to so-and-so, to so-and-so for doing this, for bringing this here, for doing that here. And there's always women scattered throughout there. Paul's not against women. Not against it. So if you came in here and said hi, God bless you. Go ahead and pray and prophesy over some people too. You're allowed to. Let's continue on. Rule number five, the rule of logic. Use your human reasoning to understand the scriptures. God inspired men to write in human language and use human reasoning, so we too should use human logic when reading. That's something that we're probably lacking in this world now. Just, just use some logic. Just just use your thinking. Just, it's, let's not go too far. Just, just, let's just use some logic. 
In the beginning, God created man and female, man and woman. Last I checked, that's all that's out there. But in the world today, we're not using our logic. We've got 200 genders now. We went from two to 2,000. I mean, it, it just... Let's use our, our logic when we're reading the Scripture. The question that we can ask when we read a passage in the Scripture is, does the interpretation that I'm understanding as I'm reading this, that I've arrived at, does it make logical sense? Because sometimes we can read, a, read something in the Bible and our mind can go take us completely in left field. Well, I can't believe Paul's telling me to shut up in church. Well, that's, that's not logical. That's, let's, let's use our different tools and see, is this a logical conclusion? Well, God doesn't heal anybody ever. He doesn't, healing's not for today. Eh. Oh, good. Let's use some logical sense there. Because all throughout the scriptures, we see God healing people. We see in the scriptures that it says, Jesus went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Everywhere he went, when people were sick, he healed them. And then Jesus says, I only do what the Father lets me do. I only do what the Father tells me to do. So if he's going about healing all that are sick, if God back in the Old Testament makes the definition of himself, his name is God the healer, God probably wants to heal people. If he made a deviation from going to the cross to stop at the whipping post to take stripes on his back only for healing, it's probably important to God. And it didn't end when he went up to heaven. God's still in the healing business. When we read the scriptures and we see the theme of healing over and over and over, we can come to a logical conclusion that God still heals, wants to heal, and wants to see you healed in your body. Just using some easy logic, reading the scriptures. When you see that theme repeated over and over and over again, let's just believe that's what the writer's trying to imply. Here, let's, uh, let's look at, at a set of scriptures in Galatians. The next slide. Galatians 1, 6 through 11. This is Paul writing to the church of Galatia. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, that's including Paul, saying even if I show up and do this, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, just in case you didn't get it the first time, Here's a, here's a big hint for you when you're reading the Bible. When any writer or Jesus is speaking and he repeats something multiple times, your red flag should be going up saying, I need to listen to this. I need to read this again. I need to understand this. When the writer is repeating himself, there's something that we can catch and receive that needs to be said. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For neither I, verse 12, received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we have new religions popping up? 
Mormonism, the Latter-day Saints, Scientology. Why, why are people showing up saying, I'm the Christ, and why are people believing that? When we can just use our easy logic by reading this scripture where Paul makes the defiant statement that if anybody else brings a different gospel other than what I've brought to you that I received from Jesus, then a curse on them and you don't need to believe them. Paul says, even if I show up later on and I preach you a different gospel than what I originally preached you, then a curse be upon me. So it should be very simple and logical for us to think, okay, the gospel is the gospel. Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, he died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried in a tomb. He rose again the third day. That's the gospel. If anybody else comes preaching that other than that gospel to you, then your red flag should be going up. Logic should be going saying, whoa, 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 false prophet, not real. Whatever he's saying, I need to take a step back. Paul says, a curse be on him. Oh, in case you didn't get it, I'm going to say it again. If anybody preaches another gospel, even if an angel, even if somebody spiritual shows up and says, hey, I got a brand new religion for you. Hey, I'm Jesus in the flesh. Your logic should be firing off. Whoa, 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 something's going on. It's not the gospel that Paul was preaching. Curse be on him. I'm stepping away from this. Just using our logic, just easy human logic as we read the scriptures. And as you come, as you're reading the Bible, and you come to an idea or an interpretation of what you're reading, just take a step back and say, does that make logical sense? Or am I bringing my own opinion into it? Is it, is it messed up? Rule of logic. All right, we're almost done. Here we go. Are you learning anything? I'm trying not to go too fast, but I'm also trying to go real fast. Uh, let's go to the next one. The rule of precedent. The rule of precedent. What's this rule about? Read how the word or statement was first mentioned and established in the Bible. We, as we read the scriptures, cannot make our own interpretation of a word or passage that has already been established in the Bible. So the question that you can ask as you're doing this is, where is this word first mentioned? So if you're reading further along in the book, and you get to the word giving. You get to the word love. We're going to talk about the word blood here in a second. You get to these different words, salvation. You get to the word God. You get to these things, and you're reading it, and you're saying, well, I think God is this or that. Well, let's, let's take the precedent. Just like in a court case, a, court, a, 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 a lawyer's not just going to make a, a ruling. A judge isn't going to make a ruling. He's going to go back to previous court cases to see what the precedent was. If you steal a water bottle from the church and they catch you and they charge you, they can't give you the death penalty. That, the, the rule of precedent there is not, it doesn't work. They're going to go back to, okay, who stole, it's going to go by price, a $5 water bottle. Okay, well that charge is a fine and a month of probation. The judge can't say, oh, you stole the water bottle? Death penalty. No, no, it's not going to fly. You've got to go back to the original court case. Let's get a precedent of, of what the original theft charge was and that. So just like as we're reading the Bible, we need to go back and see when that word was first spoken about, when it was first talked about, so that we can understand the importance of it throughout the Scriptures. The rule of precedent or first mention. Where is that 
first mentioned in the Bible, and you can go there, and it can bring some revelation to that word, to why it's important in there. So let's look at uh, the scriptures. Let's look at an example. You can go to the next one. So we're going to look at the rule of precedent, the word blood. When was the word blood first talked about? In Genesis 4, chapter 10. And he, being God, said this as he's talking to Cain after he killed Abel. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now we're going to combine some of the eight rules of homiletics here. I want to show you how we can take all of these and kind of build an idea and an interpretation. So we're going to go to the rule of definition. I'm, ta- I'm thinking about blood. I'm reading about blood in the scriptures. So I want to go back to where it was first mentioned. So what does the word blood mean in Hebrew? It's not a cuss word right here, but we're going to go ahead and say it. Bear down with me. The word in Hebrew is dam. D-A-M is the word blood. It means blood. It also means figuratively wine. Oh, wow. So now I see the importance of wine as well. Whenever I'm reading throughout the scriptures, I can infer that wine and blood have an importance together. Oh, well, I do see that in communion. I see how Jesus talks about the wine in his blood. Okay, so you see the correlation. You can see it going throughout the scriptures, the importance of wine, how it pertains to blood, the importance of blood that God makes at the very beginning of time a very important stance on blood because he says, what have you done? Abel is not speaking. Abel's dead. Abel's body isn't speaking. What is speaking to God? The blood, your brother's blood, cries out to me from the ground. So therefore, we can establish some things that blood is important to God. We can establish that blood actually speaks and that God hears what blood is saying. That's a kind of a rule of inference. We'll talk about that in a minute. Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, we can kind of infer right here that if he made skins, that he had to kill an animal. That blood had to be shed to cover the nakedness and the ashamed aspects of Adam and Eve. Now, although blood isn't spoken about there, we understand through using the rule of logic that when I kill an animal and I skin it, there's going to be blood, right? For those who are hunters, we see blood when we skin. So we can assume that. Now, let's look at it as we move forward in the Scriptures. In Hebrews 12.24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that what? Speaks better things than Abel. So Abel's blood is crying out to God, avenge me, help me. And Jesus' blood is crying out to God, salvation. It speaks better things than Abel. Look at Hebrews 9.22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we can see throughout the scriptures the importance of blood to God. That blood has to be shed for sin to be taken care of. Somebody's got to bleed. It's almost like Cain knew that. He was so angry about the tithe. He was so angry about that. And he said, Somebody's got to suffer. Somebody's got to bleed for the things that I'm feeling inside of me. And he killed him and he shed the blood. And God says, what have you done? That is an important thing, but it's not going to cover your sins. It's not going to help you. That's why we have murder today. That's why we have evil today. That somebody out there is in so much pain, they say, somebody has to die for this. 
And I'm here to tell you today that somebody already died for that. Jesus already shed his blood. You don't have to shed somebody else's blood because Jesus shed his blood for us. The rule of precedent. How we can look at the very beginning of the word and see the importance of it and then we can read throughout the rest of the scriptures and go back. Oh, now I know. Oh, we're making great time. We're almost done. We got two left. Can you handle it? All right. Well, here we go. Uh, Number seven, the rule of unity. This is a big one. Scripture must interpret Scripture. The rule of unity. The Bible talks to each other. The Bible is inspired by God, so therefore the Bible should be able to help you as you read Scriptures. The second thing I wrote is God's Word and His Spirit must agree. Scripture must interpret Scripture, the rule of unity. That we believe the Bible is one book that God has put together to tell us one story about Jesus that we can read. So if I get to a passage that I'm confused about or that is conflicting, then there should be another Scripture that should help me understand what's going on. If I'm reading the Bible and I feel like the Bible is causing me confusion, it's not the Bible, it's me. I need to figure out how to clear up that confusion. I need, to, I need to wrestle with the text to find out. I need to dive a little bit deeper. There's something that's speaking to me, and I say, well, I don't know about that. That doesn't make sense. I don't like that or whatever. Does that real? Does that apply to me? Well, I need to go to other parts of the Bible and see and make sure. This is another big thing that you can use in the world of prophecy. If you've ever received a prophetic word or somebody's spoken over you prophetically, God's Spirit and God's Word go hand in hand. So if somebody does prophesy over you and you say, well, I don't know, is that right, is that wrong? I should be able to go to the book and get some clarity on if that prophecy is in line with God's word. Your spirit should also help you. Remember, the Holy Spirit is your comforter. He's your teacher. He's going to teach you all things, all the things that Jesus has said and done, that the spirit and God's word go hand in hand. It's kind of hard for me when prophets come out and prophesy doom and gloom. It's kind of hard for me when they come out and say, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans because of all the sin there. Well, God's got terrible aim because Bourbon Street stayed open the entire time. There was a bar on Bourbon Street that stayed open 24-7 while Hurricane Katrina went there. And it killed all of these poor people. Didn't touch the sinners at all. Well, the fires... In Australia, the fires in California, that's God's judgment. Uh, That doesn't line up with what the Bible says. Jesus went about doing good. So when you hear these prophetic words, or you receive a prophetic word, you can go to the Bible. The Holy Spirit and God's word, they go hand in hand. The, The rule of unity. Scripture interprets Scripture. Here's some... Uh, Here's a question we can ask. Is there another scripture that supports my understanding of this passage? As I'm reading the Bible and I come to this conclusion of this is what the writer's saying or this is what God's trying to say, is there another passage that's out there? If I read a section of scripture and I come to the conclusion that God doesn't heal or God doesn't save, you know what? Salvation isn't for all people. Okay, that's the conclusion. Okay, I should be able to go to other scriptures and confirm that. 
Or I should go to the scriptures and be like, no, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That God came to save us all. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Rule of unity. Let's go to an example. I actually used this a couple weeks back uh, when I was preaching in December on this passage, Galatians 2.5. I don't know if you remember the sermon. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So I saw the truth of the gospel and I said, okay, is that spoken about anywhere else? Let me go look throughout Paul's writing to see if he talks about something similar to that phrase, truth of the gospel. Scripture is going to interpret Scripture to give me some more understanding of what the truth of the gospel means. A, couple, a chapter later, he writes in Galatians 3, 1 through 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So he equates the truth with Jesus Christ and him being crucified. Okay, that's the truth of the gospel. He also writes to the church of Ephesus, a completely different church, a completely different book. In him you have also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we can see how Scripture interprets Scripture, how I can look at a phrase, how I can read something and go and look somewhere else in the Scriptures to help me define what's going on and what's happening. The rule of unity. We're at the last rule, rule number eight. Say, thank God. All right, here we go, last one. Oh, we're making great time. Y'all might even get out early. Rule of inference. The last rule, we did eight rules of of hermeneutics. The rule of inference. A fact in the Bible reasonably implied by another fact. A logical sequence and a logical consequence. From what is read, here's the question we can ask ourselves, can I derive or infer this understanding from the facts of the passage? That as we read the Bible and we use our logic and our understanding We can take a step to understand a little bit more. I can infer some things. So we see uh, when Jesus calls the Apostle Paul, he goes to his mother-in-law's house who is sick and heals him. So I can use the rule of inference to infer that Paul had a wife. It's not too far of a stretch to where I'm saying, women should never speak in church. It's not that far of a stretch, but I can take some scriptures and read, okay, Paul has a mother-in-law, she's sick, Jesus heals, they're at a house. So therefore, I can use this rule of inference to infer Paul, I mean, Peter had a wife. We can just take a little bit of steps to understand the context of the Scriptures. It's not written about, we never see Peter's wife's name in the book, but we can infer that that's there. Let's look at this, this famous Scripture, the last Scripture we have, John 3, 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I can use the rule of inference to imply and understand that the world is all the people in the world, past, present, and future. I can also use the rule of inference that the world, since I live in the world, means me. See how we're, we're not going too far out of the boundary of, 
understanding the text, but we can take a little bit of a step out to understand that the Scriptures, for God so loved the world, okay, well, I'm in the world, so therefore that also applies to me. So that means, for God so loved Jeremiah land that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn Jeremiah land, but that the world and Jeremiah land might be saved through him. The rule of inference, that we can, we can take a little bit of steps as we're reading, because there's going to be parts in the Scriptures that not everything is expounded upon. Not everything is explained. And so we can just take some logic, the rule of logic. We can just take a step further and say, okay, well, Paul, Peter had a wife. If Jesus healed the mother-in-law, then that means he had a wife. It says here in the Scriptures that God loved the world. Well, I live in the world, so that must mean God loves me. That must mean he died for me. That must mean that that Scripture is me. That also means for all the people groups in the world. Can't be racist against a certain people group because God died for the whole world. See, I could take one little step outside of the Scriptures and, and make an inference and understand, oh, okay, now, now I can see that how this Scripture opens up. The eight rules of hermeneutics, the rule of definition. What does this word mean to me? What does this word mean in the English language or the original text? The rule of usage. How are the words and writings used by the author and who is it written to? The rule of context. What is this paragraph, chapter, book talking about? The rule of historical background. What was going on during the time of the writing? What was life and society like during this time? Number five, the rule of logic. Does the interpretation that I have arrived at make logical sense? The rule of precedent. Where is the first mention of the word in the Bible? Number seven, the rule of unity. Is there another scripture out there that supports my understanding of this passage? Number eight, the rule of inference. From what is read, can I derive or infer this understanding from the facts of the passage? Homiletics, hermeneutics. These things will help you as you study the word. We've given you, and we still have some on the, the white thing out there. If you want the folder, uh, the little pamphlet for reading the Bible uh, in a year using the five-day method, as you can read that and understand that. But these are steps right here that as you're studying the Word, as you're reading, that you can go deeper into it. And you can, you can take some more truths, some new revelations that you haven't read or seen before. So I want you, whatever you're doing in your Bible reading, that's great. I just hope that you can take these, apply them to your life. So we, we preached two weeks ago. We've taught these last two weeks. And next week I'm going to preach to you about the power of the Word. I want to show you in the Scripture the importance and the power of the Word. Why it's so important to get this book inside of you and get this book out of your mouth. That the more you put it inside of you and the more you speak it, the more it's going to help you and change your life. So that's how we're going to finish off the series, talking about the power of the Word. Amen? Let's stand up today. Y'all did great class. You get an A-plus and a sticker. We'll give you some stars on the way out. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can read your word, we can study your word, that we have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the knowledge base of hermeneutics to go deeper in your word, that we can read and understand and get full of grace and truth in our life, because that is what we ultimately need. We need you, Jesus, and with you, Jesus, comes a fulfilling of grace and truth in our lives. So as we read this word, as we step into this new understanding of Bible reading in 2020, we expect, Father, to hear your words, to hear your voice. Holy Spirit, teach us, guide us, help us in all things that we do. Father, I thank you that everyone here has the mind of Christ, that they understand 
what you wrote, what you speak, what you say, Father, because the spirit that is in them is the same one that rose Christ from the dead. Father, I thank you that everyone here and those who aren't here are healed by those stripes of Jesus. Father, we speak your word, we send your word, and we let it do what it's supposed to do. That the word that we have presented today, it says in your word, it will not fail, Father. It will not go by the wayside, but it will fall on good ground in our hearts, and it will bear fruit, some 30, some 60, even 100-fold. Father, I thank you that everyone here is the head and not the tail. They're above and not beneath. They're blessed in the city and blessed in the field. They are blessed where they are right now, and they are blessed in the future that you're bringing them into. The Scripture says that everything they put their hands to must prosper in Jesus. And finally, Father, I think your Scripture says that you call us the salt and light of the earth. We are a city set on a hill. We do not bring the spirit of error. We bring the spirit of truth in Jesus, and we emit the fragrance of the of Jesus everywhere we go according to your word and according to your scriptures. Use us this week to help and bless people as we go out into our work week and into our families' lives. Protect your people, cause them to prosper in everything they do. Keep them safe through as they travel. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you all so much. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you all. for listening to Press Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us or are interested in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in our bio or visit presschurch.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Press Church SC and have a great week.